So our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 13 as we return now to uh, our series in 2 Samuel. Uh, I don't really have a an adequate or witty introduction uh, today today's passage other than to say that um, it is a dark chapter and it will probably raise a lot of questions and so I give you that uh, as a warning uh, to parents uh, that there will be a lot of things perhaps today that that you might want to answer for your children. Uh, If there's anything that we can all agree on when we read chapters like this in the Bible, it it is at least this, that uh, that wickedness is indeed wicked, that sin is sinful. And so the closest thing to a a lighthearted introduction you will get today is to admit to you that, in fact, yes, I preached on Psalm 119 two weeks ago because I didn't want to preach on this. Uh, Especially with the chance that uh, perhaps new folks from Backyard Bible Camp might be there for the first time that Sunday, I thought this would be a pretty harsh introduction to coming to Hope of Christ, especially after dancing around with me singing John 3.16 all week. It just seemed odd. And so I thought I would hold off on that. Now, in hindsight, it probably would have been better to preach it and then run to Cleveland for a week. (laughs) But here we are. I'll be here all week. Uh, Now, uh, one final comment on this. Our, Our Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us that while all sin... All sins are transgressions of God's law. Some sins in and of themselves are more heinous than other sins, even in God's eyes. Uh, Either because of the heinousness, the wickedness of that sin itself, or because of the circumstances or other things contributing to that sin. So circumstances contributing. For example, if you steal $100 from rich, I mean, that's bad. If you steal $100 from Colton, come on. So that's a more heinous sin because of the circumstance of the sin. Is all is stealing hundred dollars always bad? Of course it is. Stealing a hundred dollars from a grown man and stealing a hundred dollars from a child, those are two different sins. One is more heinous than the other. So some sins are more heinous because of their circumstances. Some sins are more heinous, though, because of the wickedness of the sin. It is not to say that it, that it's not true that all sins are wicked. All sins are, in fact, wicked. And this passage displays some of the most ugly, really one of the most heinous and ugly sins uh, possible, especially uh, in committed against women. And now if reading this passage or hearing uh, this sermon, I don't want to assume that there aren't 
folks here who have not dealt with some of these things. And so I want you to be assured that if this passage is particularly difficult, please call me, please text me. Uh, I can, I am willing to sit and talk with you. I'm willing to direct you uh, to someone else who could talk with you. If you would prefer to speak with a woman on this matter, I can direct you toward counselors that I know. Even uh, Sonia Lino is willing uh, to, uh, to talk with you, and I know others would be as well. Uh, but don't, don't allow this to, uh, to trigger uh, painful memories without talking to someone about it. Uh, you, we, none of us were designed to figure out this life alone. The church exists to bear one another's burdens together. Um, so let's stand with that said. Uh, this is Psalm, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please, let my sister Tamar come and make a couple cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in, the sight, in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, this, out, 
As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was angry. He was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. 
And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Jeshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> so real quickly, uh, obviously some questions arise, I would imagine. Uh, maybe the first is, why, why is this in the Bible? Uh, and it's important for us to, to remember and understand that that God never sidesteps or avoids the reality of sin or the wickedness of sin. God does not sweep it under the rug. He doesn't pretend it's no big deal. Uh, he doesn't use cute metaphors or code words to make it sound safer. I remember uh, a friend that I was helping or trying to help uh, he would often refer to his sin or his temptations as uh, tiptoeing through the tulips. I went, I had asked, you know, how was your week this week? Well, I, I went tiptoeing through the tulips this week. And that's never how God refers to our sin. In fact, if God uses metaphors, it's usually to strengthen the ugliness of sin. God doesn't try to make it less horrifying or more palatable for us because we shouldn't, we shouldn't be easy with sin. We shouldn't consider sin lightly. You and I need reminders that sin is ugly and sin is powerful and it is controlling and it is dominating and it is abusive and it is harmful and it always, always always leads to death. Now, maybe your second question is, okay, fine, I get that it's in the Bible. Why do you have to preach it? I mean, why not, why not just send us home with some homework? Hey, read chapter 13. Next week, we'll be looking at chapter 14. So at Hope of Christ, we are committed to... Uh, what we would call, well, not us, we didn't invent the phrases, but uh, what is called expository preaching. And we normally follow uh, a Lectio Continua model. So, hey, how about that? So there's 50 cents right there for you. So expository preaching is simply uh, we read a passage of Scripture and the points in the passage drive the points of the sermon. We don't have points in the sermon and then go raking through the Bible to support our points, but we look at a passage and the goal of preaching is to bring the points of the passage out. Whether they're the, always the, the primary points or perhaps secondary points, but, but we look to Scripture to tell us uh, how do we, what are we to think? How are we to live? What are we to do with this? Including in preaching. How ought I preach? Well, what does the passage say? Lectio continua just means that we go through the Bible 
in a systematic, orderly. We pick a, chat, a book, and then we work our way through that book. We just follow. It just means um, a continuous reading. And so uh, in some senses, when you're committed to that, when you get to hard passages like this, and the congregation knows our normal way, when you skip a passage, that's like neon lights saying, hey, go home and read this one because nobody knows why Pastor Bailey skipped it. So the best thing is to just deal with it. It's in the Bible. God didn't put it in there and think, oh, man, people might read that. No, he knew what he was inspiring when he put it down for us. We're told in Hebrews 4 that the Word of God is, is living and active and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, yes, sometimes the Word of God is, is very comforting and appealing, but sometimes the Word of God tells us very hard, difficult things that we have to deal with. But Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God that it is profitable for us. All Scripture is profitable. Profitable for teaching or for reproof or for correcting or for training in righteousness. Sometimes all four of those, sometimes one or two of those, but it is always profitable. And then your third question would then be, are you stalling? Yes. The answer to that would be yes, because there's really no easy way to approach this chapter. Uh, I'm grateful for uh, one of the authors and seminary professors that I was reading, um, Dr. Ralph Davis. Uh, his work on both First and Second Samuel have been very helpful, uh, but especially on this particular chapter, as he simply unpacks it um, according to the, the people involved, just looking at the different characters, looking at uh, Amnon and Jonadab and Absalom and David. Um, but even as we look at them, the overwhelmingly, conspicuously absent character in this entire chapter is God, isn't it? Uh, God is never mentioned. Even in chapter 11, at the very end of David's sin, we're told, but the Lord saw, but the Lord was grieved. In nowhere in chapter 13 is God mentioned. Where is God in all of this? He is quiet. He is unnamed. He is unseen. Is this, as the title claims, a chapter without God? And obviously, you know that I think it is not a chapter without God, but we'll return to that. And so first, though, we want to look at what else is missing. So when we consider Abnon, what we see is lust without love. And when we look at Jonadab, we see prudence without principles. And Absalom, we see resentment without restraint. And in David himself, we see anger without action. But even before we get to those four, we had better stop 
and weep for Tamar. She is the obedient daughter of the king. She is a dutiful and loving sister. In preparing this sermon, I listened to several uh, much older sermons on this passage. Um, And in one, one of the pastors uh, used this passage, or at least part of it, to speak against the dangers of beauty. And I, I think I find that as repulsive as Amnon's actions. The idea that we might scold Tamar for being too attractive is, is wickedness itself. Do you ever find yourself looking for justifications for wickedness? Not because you want to be wicked, but because you want to protect yourself from it happening to you. So you look for, well, why did this happen to her? Well, what could she have done differently? Well, how? Well, so, I mean, it seems like she must have brought this on herself. Somehow she made it seem as though she was open to this idea, obviously. Tamar is not to blame. Tamar is not complicit. No young woman, no matter what century it is, is asking for it. No young woman has it coming to her. No young woman deserves to be abused or mistreated or harmed, whether it's physically or emotionally or verbally, including those young women who have been dragged or seduced or lied to that their only value is what they can offer sexually. Young women who are enslaved and trapped in the pornography industry. They don't have it coming to them. They don't deserve what we do to treat them or how we look at them as pieces of meat or things simply for my gratification. They do not deserve it. They don't have it coming to them. They aren't looking for it. These young women are our sisters. They are our daughters. And even as I offer to the women a counselor, if you are looking for one, men, you're not to face this alone. You're not alone in your struggle. Don't pretend or let Satan tell you you're alone. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to an elder. Talk to each other. Because no young woman deserves to be treated the way Tamar was treated. These are our sisters who are made in the image of God and they have dignity and value and worth. And so with that, let's look at these 
these four men. We look at Amnon and we see lust without love. Amnon did not see his own sister as a fellow image bearer with dignity, value, and worth. Do you notice how the author will not let you forget the familial connections throughout this chapter? His sister, her brother, my sister, my brother, your sister, your brother, your brother, your sister. It's over and over so that we don't miss the horrific heinousness of this. Amnon claims that it's love. The author allows the use of the word, but it is not love. And we know this by the end result, that he immediately hated her more than he ever loved her. It is not love, it is desire, it is lust, it is selfish, sinful, wicked, hateful lust. It is not a good desire gone bad. It is not a neutral desire that only becomes sin when he acts on it. It is sin itself. His desire for his sister is sin. It is a wicked, sinful desire. There are circles in academic Christianity today that that talk now about the sinfulness of desire. And if you want like a 75-cent word, it's concupiscence. The concupiscence, like when does desire become sin? Like when does a want become sin? And there are some who would say that it's only when it's acted upon. But when is desire acted upon? Is it only acted upon when it comes out in physical manifestations? Or is desire acted upon the moment that I take in that desire, allow it to continue, to fester. Amnon made himself sick with this desire and not in the way he should have. He should have been sick with this desire. He should have been disgusted. He should have been weeping with repentance. He should have been seeking deliverance, seeking help, but he was sick because he f- it festered and he just dwelt on it. Amnon's desire was sin from the get-go, and it grew into sinfulness as he dwelt on it, and it grew into sinfulness when he followed through with it. Or to put it another way, Amnon had a sinful desire that he sinfully fed and sinfully acted on. As John Owen put in his very famous work, Mortification of Sin, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And none of the ridiculousness or silliness of, well, if the Lust itself was sin, he may as well act on it. No, again, we return to there are some sins that are more heinous than others. Yes, the desire was sin. Acting on it was more sinful, or at least more heinously sinful. As Martin Luther, in talking about temptation, put it once, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head. You can keep it from building a nest in your hair. 
Yes, we are tempted by the, the thoughts and the passions and the desires we have, but we, especially in Christ, have the Holy Spirit and the ability to say no, to turn and walk away, to turn from the sin, to flee and live. As one anonymous poem puts it, two natures live within my breast. One is cursed, one is blessed. One I love, one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. Amnon is blinded by his sin. He does not see his sister as human. Amnon is deafened by his sin. He can't even hear his sister's pleas. As she says, no, my brother, don't do this wicked thing. This is a thing that's not even done in all of Israel. We, that, this is so horrific. This is not a thing that we would do who would call ourselves children of God. You would be one of the most outrageous fools in all of Israel. And it's not fool as in moron, as we might say today. Fool in the biblical sense. It's the idea of just being a a wicked pervert, a godless wretch. When the Bible talks about being a fool, it's talking about a godless wretch. She says, Amnon, you would be one of the most ridiculous godless wretches in the land if you follow through with this. But he cannot hear her and he is hardened by his sin. Once he's satisfied, his true feelings toward his sister show up. He hates her. It's interesting in Hebrew, I don't know why the English changes it, but in Hebrew, he doesn't call her even this woman. When he calls his servant in, he just says, get this out of here. Amnon has lust without love. But in one sense, Amnon, as uh, Dr. Davis Red reads this. He says, Amnon is not the most dangerous character in this passage. Jonadab is the most dangerous character because Amnon has this lust, but he's weak. He's a weak individual who just is making himself sick. He's not running away from his lust. He's not running toward it. But here comes this man who has prudence without principle. Amnon's cousin. This is David's nephew. Our English translation calls him very crafty, and while that is actually true, it's a softening of the word. The literal word, so crafty, we hear of the serpent in Genesis 3. It's not the same word here. This word is the word throughout the Old Testament simply translated as wise. Now, Jonadab was very wise, the writer says. But there is a wisdom that despises God. There is a using of your wisdom in a way to actually dishonor God, to to use God, to manipulate God and others. You can be wise and actually use that wisdom to further sin. Jonadab is wise in the sense that he always seems to be at a place of influence. Notice that he shows up again at the end of the chapter as David is, uh, is 
he hears the rumor that all of his sons are dead, and there's Jonadab all of a sudden. He says, no, no, it's not all your sons. It's, I'm pretty sure it's probably Amnon who's dead, because for at least two and a half years now, your other son has been plotting his death. Jonadab has prudence, but he has no principles. As opposed to Absalom, who has resentment and no restraint. You know, Amnon's lust grew quickly to hatred. Absalom's hatred was more of a refined, uh, steady boil. You know, we might sympathize with Absalom's hatred of his half-brother, but we may not excuse his actions. His murder of his brother was murder. Whatever you might think Amnon deserved, it wasn't Absalom's place to deal it to him. We prefer to paint people in our lives, and especially in Scripture, we prefer, you know, those monochromatic you know, just black and white, and then the, we don't like the shades. Hollywood knows this. I don't know if you've noticed. Like, if they want you to stop liking a character, they just start emphasizing some of their flaws so that when they kill them, you don't feel so bad. You're like, eh, had it coming to them. We prefer that. It's easier for us. We don't like to hear or be reminded Absalom even in his hatred for Amnon, took in Tamar and cared for her the rest of her life. In chapter 14, Absalom will name his daughter Tamar. This man loved his sister. There's no denying that. It's silly to claim that he doesn't. Of course he does. The focus here is not on whether or how well he loved his sister, but how much he despised his brother. If we were to use the language of this chapter, we could say uh, the hatred with which Absalom hated Amnon was greater than the love with which he loved his sister Tamar. But it's deeper than hatred. It's, it's what we would call contempt. Contempt for a person is is stronger than hatred because hatred it requires emotional output. Contempt is just, you are not even worth it. He won't even talk to his brother for two years. Won't say good things, won't say bad things. His brother is dead to him. He harbors these feelings. He plans how he might murder his own brother. It's not justice that Absalom is after. Justice seeks judges, seeks the proper authorities. He is after vengeance, pure and simple. It is not Absalom's place to punish the wicked. Whose place is it? Whose place is it to punish Amnon? David. It's David's place. A thousand years later, in a letter to the church in Rome, Paul would write, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The ruler is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Peter, also writing to young churches, would remind us all that governing rulers are in place in order to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good. 
That's not a new idea. That's not a New Testament idea. That is the place of government in all of time, including in Israel when David was king. So where was David? We're told he was angry, and I would hope so. In fact, verse 21 tells us he was very angry. But just as Jonadab was very wise without principle, David was very angry without action. And as if we haven't felt enough anger over Amnon's actions, I think David's inaction is nothing short of infuriating. Why does David do nothing? One indicator in this and in other passages, one possibility is that David was not a great father. At least not as far as expecting very much from his grown children. It's possible that that's what Tamar is talking about when she says to Amnon, listen, ask our father. He won't withhold me from you. Maybe she knows that he's a weak father. Now, we don't want to read too much into that because Tamar is in a pretty bad place. She is saying anything she can to stop Absalom. So we don't put too much into her words other than she's trying to stop her brother from this horrific action. But David was not a great father to his adult children. Why? Well, maybe he did nothing because the reality is what could he do? What could he do with these two chips off the old block? One son abuses a woman for his pleasure with no regard for her or anyone else. One son concocts a murder by luring a man to his death. And do you notice that David was involved in both? That David is tricked into being a part of both. Just as in chapter 11, David sends for Bathsheba and sends Uriah to his death. David sends his daughter to Amnon and sends his son to Absalom. And so we return to the title. Is this indeed a chapter without God? It sure feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, if nothing else, these are four men who, at least in this moment, are acting without any sense of the presence of God. And while, yes, there's no mention of God's name, God is here. God isn't just here watching. God is here active. And he's not necessarily here in ways that we want him to be here. But that's another thing about God and his word. What he reveals in his word is true, whether we are comfortable with that truth or not. 
Things are true whether you like them or you don't like them. It does not matter. It doesn't impact truth. That's a hard concept for many today to get. But in order to see God in this passage, we have to recall Nathan's warning to David in chapter 12. In verse 10 of chapter 12, David says to, or Nathan says to David, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. God's word is reliable. Even the parts of God's word that we don't want to be reliable is reliable. God does not make empty threats. Does this mean that God somehow caused Amnon to rape Tamar and caused Absalom to murder Amnon? No. No, God is not the author of evil. God does not ever force anyone to do anything against his or her own will. Amnon did what Amnon did according to Amnon's will and desire. This is how sinful sin is. God doesn't cause you to sin You cause you to sin. It does mean that God's word can be trusted, that the word of the Lord indeed stands firm forever, including his word that we might rather see fade from the picture. Even when he seems silent or passive or absent, We use the opening of Psalm 50. I'd encourage you to read all of Psalm 50 at some point, perhaps today or this week. There's a point in Psalm 50 where God speaks to the outside world. The whole psalm is a psalm of judgment against his people. The Lord God, the mighty one, rises and calls his people, come, I am your judge. But then he turns and looks at the outside world and he says, you, what right have you to take my law on your lips? You do all these things, he says, And I have said nothing, and you thought, because of my silence, I was just like you. Do we think that when God is silent, it must mean that he somehow quietly approves or just shrugs and says, what can I do? Be sure of this, God's silence is not approval. God is more holy and more just and more righteous than any of us can handle. And God is more patient and more merciful and more compassionate than you could possibly imagine. Maybe you don't think there's comfort right now in knowing that God's word never changes. But if that is true, you would forget the very next sentence that God says to David after pronouncing those things. The Lord has put away your sin. 
you will not die. The Lord has put away your sin. Let me ask you a question. Does it make you a little uncomfortable to speak of David's forgiveness by God? That it was that easy? What David did to Bathsheba, to Uriah, he says, I've sinned against the Lord, and God's response is, the Lord has put away your sin from you. You will not die. It should. It should make you uncomfortable. It should be scandalous. You know, that's how the Bible describes the cross of Jesus, scandalous. If you are uncomfortable with God's forgiveness of David, you are closer to understanding grace. It's not deserved. If you feel that David doesn't deserve for his sins to be forgiven, now you're getting somewhere. Now you are closer. But do you use this passage to be appalled at David and Amnon and Absalom and Jonadab? Or do you allow this passage to penetrate so that you might see your own sin, your own lusts? Are you appalled at the sin that you see in this passage alone? Or are you appalled at the sin that you see in your heart? We're shocked and appalled at the sin. Are we shocked and appalled at the cause and catalyst and source of our forgiveness? Do we look as we've just sung? Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Does the cross shock and appall me because I see on the cross the penalty for my sin? But let me tell you that even as we sang, and this is the first time that this struck me today, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? No. Nope. He wasn't trapped on the cross by the sin of the world. He stayed on the cross out of love for sinners. It was his love that held him there. His love for you, his love for the Father, his, his commitment. It was certainly God's wrath. But it's not as though your sin was enough to bind him to the cross. It was the Father's wrath and the Son's willingness that held him to the cross. That is scandalous. That is freeing. That is life. Let's pray. God, would you please... Open our eyes, even through this passage, to look at our own sin and be appalled and dismayed at our own sin.
but then grant that we would look up to the cross and see our sin paid for by the death of your Son. Give us a desire to be killing sin lest it be killing us. Give us a desire for actual holiness rather than the appearance of holiness that we might be of help and encouragement to one another. I pray, God, that you would grant us not just wisdom, but godly wisdom. That we would deny and turn from our lusts and desires and seek to reorient our hearts toward desiring you alone. I pray that our anger over sin would not just be an impotent, actionless anger, when we see wickedness, we would speak up. You would break our hearts for the victims. God, in our own hearts and lives and stories, in the very places where we have felt most abandoned, would you Open our eyes that we might see that you have been with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. We praise you and thank you that you are God and there is no other. In Jesus' name, amen.